reached out to me and gave me an opportunity to uh, be able to preach during a sabbatical. Uh, it is such an honor to be here. And um, it's also humbling to stand in this pulpit. I have such respect for uh, this church and the work that you are all doing, and as well as your pastors, Gabe and Tim. It's been a delight to get to know them, and I'm excited to continue to get to know them. And I'm so thankful to be partners in the gospel here in the Triangle area. Uh, if you would turn in your Bibles to Genesis 18, <clears throat> I know uh, you all have been walking through a series called Faith of Our Fathers through the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis uh, in Gabe's absence. And um, you've, you've walked through Genesis 12 through 17 now. And in doing so, you've witnessed God's cosmic and yet intimate promise that he has made, his covenant that he has made with Abraham. Uh, and now we come to Genesis 18, and it makes me think of a great quote that Peter Jackson uh, altered a little bit in the movie from The Lord of the Rings. When Gandalf says about the two hobbits on their way to Mordor, all our hopes now lie with two little hobbits somewhere in the wilderness. And as we come into chapter 18 today, we see literally all the world's hopes now lie with a 99-year-old and an 89-year-old wrinkled and barren couple. So let's turn in our Bibles and see what God has in store for them. Genesis 18, verses 1 through 15. <clears throat> and the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent and to Sarah and said, quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind them. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. This, friends, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, 
We ask you now to open our hearts to love your truth because we know that we can't fully trust our own experiences. We can't fully trust human tradition. We can't fully trust our desires at any given moment. We need you to reorient us. And so we thank you for your word and for passages like this, which reorient our hearts around your son. We ask you to come be with us and teach us to love your truth. Especially, Lord, teach us to love the parts of your truth that we may be most uncomfortable with. That's where we will need your help the most. So we ask you to be our patient, wise, gentle, and gracious teacher today. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to begin by introducing you to someone whom I know and many others know was very close to God. In fact, he's very close now as he is with him in glory. But while here, listen about his life. Many say that he may well be the most influential Christian thinker in the 20th century. He eventually left the comfort of his dynamic pastoral job in the Midwest and moved his family overseas to start a mission organization from scratch to reach war-stricken and post-Christian Europe. And dozens of key Christian leaders were converted and discipled from that mission work, who are now converting and deeply discipling thousands more in their own lives. A pastor, apologist, a best-selling author, and an activist whose work and ministry reached around the world. He managed to deeply and personally influence people of every age and position, the schooled intellectual, the common laborer, the scientist and the artist, the doubting Christian, and the skeptical non-believer in a way that few others have. It's said that he may have done more to shape the culture of American Christianity at the end of the 20th century than anyone other than C.S. Lewis and Billy Graham. Os Guinness, one of his more famous disciples, said of him, I never met anyone with such a passion for God, a passion for people, and a passion for truth. That is an extremely rare combination, and he embodied it all. His name was Francis Schaeffer. And it's maybe not as well known that halfway through his ministry, as he began his mission work in Europe, this spiritual giant wrote this. Well, maybe Christianity is not true. Maybe we've just invented this whole thing, and we're just pushing it on people as a program. Does this God exist? Is the Bible true? Will I throw it out? And he also told his wife, Edith, at the same time, Edith, I really feel torn to pieces by the lack of reality, the lack of seeing the results the Bible talks about, which should be seen in the Lord's people and in myself. It seems that the only honest thing to do is rethink, re-examine the whole matter of Christianity. Is it true? I need to go back to my agnosticism and start at the beginning. Schaefer spent several years teetering in this place of doubt, which God eventually helped him climb out of, and he was much stronger because of that season. But Schaefer's experience is a testament to words that were penned by Charles Spurgeon years before that. When someone says, I never doubt, it is quite time for us to doubt him. And John Calvin said, we cannot imagine any certainty 
that is not tinged with doubt, nor any assurance that is not assailed by anxiety. I'm about to introduce you to someone who also was close to God. Eventually, it might be argued, closer to God than Schaefer, Calvin, and Spurgeon. Sarah, Abraham's wife, the promised princess of God's kingdom. And yet, though she now lives in Christian infamy, we see in this story she had very humble beginnings, not just physically, but spiritually. She had serious doubts, as we will see. But this passage is not just about Sarah and her doubts. Even more so, it's about the God who meets her in her doubts. And it raises a question for us as well. How does God meet us in our doubts that many of us often struggle with, whether we admit it or not, or we know people who do? How can we expect to experience him in that place? This passage will teach us to expect at least three things that God does in our doubts. In this passage and in our lives, he does something relational, he does something radical, and he does something tangible. So first, he does something relational. Look at verse 1 again. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. So why is Abraham sitting at the door of his tent? Is it because he's old as he, as he is and maybe tired and worn out? Or maybe because it's hot. The passage mentions it's in the heat of the day. And in that culture and still in, in many cultures, they practice a siesta in the, in the midday in the heat. Maybe he's still healing from his circumcision. That was just talked about in the previous passage. Maybe he's pondering. Maybe, it's, maybe he's more introspect in this moment. And it's not just physical rest, but he's pondering still in this moment. His, his waiting on God for God's promises and this promised child. And I love that it mentions he's in his tent. It's a, it's a, it's a little reminder that he hasn't settled yet. He's still a pilgrim. He's still waiting for God to, for God's promise. So it continues in verse 2. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Behold, it says, and behold is always an important word, really wanting to capture our attention. So the behold is, is why would there all of a sudden be travelers, especially in the heat of the day? Some like to interpret these travelers. Who are they? Some like to interpret them as the Trinity. But if you read carefully on in the story, you find out that two of them are angels, messengers from God. But one of them, in fact, is the Lord. Many believe that this is uh, somehow a, a pre-incarnate Christ. In a sense, Abraham is meeting with a pre-incarnate Christ here. And it continues in verse 2. When, when Abraham saw them, he ran. This old man ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, Oh, Lord. Now, I'll point out uh, the word there for Lord is Adonai. And there's, there's two different ways to... Um, capture that word in Hebrew. One, one form of it refers more to earthly masters, and another form, um, whenever it's used, is speaking of a deity, of a, of a divine master. And it's right there, it's using the divine word for it. And so there, there's a sense in which we can grasp that Abraham senses something different about these messengers, these visitors. And he continues in verse 3, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. 
Rest here, wash your feet, let me bring you a morsel of bread. And as the passage continues, he, he then proceeds to rally his whole household and his wife in the heat of the day, in the heat of the afternoon, to prepare not a morsel of bread, but a royal feast, as, he, as it read. So what's going on here in this moment? Is there anything we can learn from these first eight verses? We need to be careful because, uh, you know, in some ways we can argue that Abraham is following the customs of the day. The ancient Near East was a, was a, a, had a culture of being hospitable to travelers, and, and it's still true in, in the Middle East today. I've actually experienced it myself. But the text clearly wants us to know about the extravagance of Abraham's hospitality. So it's communicating something more than just the customs of the day here. Especially when you uh, compare this passage to the beginning of chapter 19, which you'll study in a couple weeks. There you see another instance of hospitality, but it's much different. Um, in contrast, there two of the three messengers go on to Sodom and they meet Lot. And, and while Lot himself gives them you know, pretty decent hospitality, the city of Sodom, uh, uh, is, it's much different. They, uh, they despise these, these messengers and they, 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 they come upon them. So as one scholar summarizes the difference, as Abraham, Abraham's invitation ushers his guests into a place of safety, comfort, and provision, while Lot's invitation will bring them into a place of danger and disrepute mainly because of Sodom. So the text is definitely drawing attention, especially when seen in light of chapter 19, to Abraham's hospitality for a reason. There's something for us to learn here. And also remember, what has just happened in the passage before? God has just now entered into a covenant relationship with Abraham and his family. The covenant discussions proper are essentially over now. They are in relationship, and part of that covenant as you saw in chapter 17, was that they would walk together. That, that there would be this sense of intimacy in their covenant relationship. They would walk together. They're, they would belong to each other. You are my people and I am your God. You could argue then, as one pastor has done, that this warm and charming account told with such loving detail is a fulfillment of that promise uh, of this intimate co covenant relationship to have a personal relationship with him. God comes no longer as a remote voice or as a terrifying fire as he did in chapter 15, but in a very accessible and palpable form to speak face-to-face -face with them. And of course, that isn't the common approach for the rest of the Bible. It's not what he does every single time the rest of the Bible, but there's definitely something being communicated about his relational nature here. And Abraham's actions in response in response, teach us something about how to deepen our relationship with God. Abraham acts in a, a loving and sacrificial way here. And what's the effect of Abraham's actions? The writer to Hebrews makes a remarkable reference <clears throat> to this instance when he writes in chapter 13 of Hebrews, Keep loving each other as brothers. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some have entertained angels without knowing it. As, as one person put it, Abraham was simply doing his duty well, but his reward was contact with God himself. In the same way, we are taught 
that if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. Friendship with God, like friendship with anyone, cannot deepen unless you are committed to spending time together. Now, it's been said, experiences of the presence of God cannot be programmed. You can't just, you know, like a genie in a bottle, just make it, you know, have control over it. They have to come to us. However, they won't come if we've stopped being faithful to our basic Christian duties. The ordinary ways the Bible says that God's presence is strengthened in our life, and thus our faith is strengthened, especially when in doubt. First of all, one of the primary ways that you all know is through his word, which is so much God's presence in our lives that it's essentially the same as having God sit across the table from you, speaking directly to you. That's what the Bible says about how much God's presence is in his word. And it's even more so amongst the company of believers in corporate worship under the preached word. One person I was listening to recently, he asked, do you go to church expecting to meet God each week? I thought that was a very convicting question. And God teaches us in his word, especially in the Psalms, that he can handle our doubts. In fact, he gives us language in the Psalms for how to express our doubts to him. How gracious is that? We, we are, the presence of the Lord is strengthened through prayer, through Christian fellowship, the presence of God through the people of God being in our lives. The presence of God in our lives is strengthened and our, our faith is strengthened through the sacraments. I love that you all uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper every week. Um, what a statement of humility that you make in doing that. You're, you're in a sense saying to the world by having communion each week that we are a weak people in need of strengthening of our faith. What a powerful statement about the, the goodness of God and our need for God's grace in our lives. And, God, and God's presence is strengthened in our lives, and, and this is where it connects mostly to Abraham's hospitality through serving those in need. Jesus says in Matthew 25, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Abraham is faithful in his ethical duty of hospitality, and as a result, he finds himself going deeper into fellowship with God, as we'll see as the passage continues next week. God does something relational. Abraham, who had doubted, as you saw in the previous weeks, he is now encouraged through this relational experience of God. But remember, God's coming is not so much for Abraham here. He had already had this discussion with him. Instead, we see as the story continues that his coming is even more so for Sarah. Sarah, up to this point, has learned of God mostly secondhand through Abraham and Abraham's interactions with God. But God knows it's important to get Sarah fully on board with his world-saving mission through her family. So what does he do? Though he's told them multiple times now that they would bear a son, he shows up again to tell them that they will have a son. He comes to reiterate his promise to them. He comes in person in a special way to get her attention. And more on that in a moment. So how does God meet us in our doubts? Not from high upon an ivory tower, not as some distant or detached guru, but relationally as a covenant friend. He, he, he meets us by doing something relational, but he also goes even further. He does something radical. The story goes on in verse 9. 
They, the messengers, said to Abraham, Where is Sarah, your wife? Now, we know that this is obviously a rhetorical question. They know where Sarah is, but it shows their concern. They want Sarah to, um, to listen. They know that Sarah is nearby. And Abraham responds, she's in the tent. And then God talks loud enough so that Sarah can hear you. Think of maybe that person at a party sometimes who starts talking loud enough. They want the, the other people nearby in their conversation to overhear what they're saying. And God talks loud enough so that Sarah can hear. He says, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. This is the first time God has gotten specific about his child promise to them. It's more just been this generic promise of you will have this son and you will have this, these nations come from you. But now he is specific of when that it will come. It's getting real. And the word for listening there uh, is in a form that communicates uh, that Sarah is locked in and hanging on every word of the Lord here. And I love the next comment in verse 11. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with her. She had gone through menopause. And this is the author's way of trying to take some of the edge off of what Sarah is about to do. Verse 12, so Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? She doesn't just doubt the Lord, she laughs in his face. So what would you do at this point if you were the Lord? You've gone out of your way to make it clear what you are going to do for your chosen people. You've shown your faithfulness to them time and again, and Sarah laughs at you. If some of us are honest, we might revoke the promise at this point. Okay, never mind. I'll save the world through a different family. But the story continues. Verse 13. The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed pair a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. And Sarah at this point becomes afraid. Verse 15. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And said, But, but the Lord said to her, No, you did laugh. A couple of observations from this particular interaction. God does something radical in a couple of ways. He shows radical grace in this moment. Grace despite their doubt. What does God do here with doubting Sarah? We've seen this before, right? Don't forget that God had already been gracious with doubting Abraham just a few verses before who had done the same thing. He also uses the same tone with Sarah, as he used with Peter, as Peter's faith began to fail as he was walking out to Jesus in the lake and in the Sea of Galilee. It's the same gentle voice that Jesus uses with doubting Thomas as he asks him, put your finger here and see my hands. Don't disbelieve, but believe me. He gently reaffirms his promise to her in this passage. So friends, what does this tell us about our God? Does he only answer our prayers if only we just had enough faith? Do we need to put on our best face to come to him? If we did, how many of us would come to him at all? We would most likely hide and deny our sins and weaknesses, pretending we're living a victorious Christian life when we're not. Or do we, or do we believe that he will treat us like a friend, a friend who says both, 
Come as you are, and I love you too much to leave you the way you are, as he does to Sarah. Professor Ian Duguid, he, he summarizes it well. God knows your persistent doubts, your, incess, your insistent fears, your unfulfilled dreams, and your dark desires. And when you spread them out before him, he deals with you gently and graciously, as with a friend. So God does something radical. He shows radical grace. Grace prevails over unbelief. What we read in Genesis 18 is what we read all over the Bible, that God shows favor to those even with serious doubts. Now, as in always when we preach the Bible, the real point isn't as much that Sarah laughed. The real point to us today is what? We laugh as well. We laugh in the face of God often. We stop believing. We stop believing that God can reach our neighbor who wants nothing to do with Jesus. We stop believing that he's bigger than our addictions. We stop believing he'll take care of us in retirement. We stop believing he's the only one who can change our children's hearts. We don't believe he has the power to rein in our wayward children. We don't believe he can breathe new life into our marriages. We don't believe he will give us the relationships we long for, and so we worry and fret in the face of God. Another way to translate verse 14, where it says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Maybe even a, a better way to translate the Hebrew is, is it saying, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Which implies that Sarah had lost the wonder of who God is. And we do the same thing, don't we? We begin to, to fail to pray because we've lost the wonder. What difference does it make anyways? Or we don't pray boldly. We lose the wonder. We don't confess our sins because we forget the wonder of God's holiness. If you are here today and you have lost the wonder, or if you are in a season of doubt, maybe there's something in your life that you think is too hard for the Lord, or maybe it's not you, but you know a fellow brother or sister in Christ in that place, I've got good news for you. We serve a God who deals gently with us in that place, whose goodness and mercy shall follow us and pursue us all the days of our life, including seasons of doubt. I mean, look at Hebrews 11, where it uh, references Abraham and Sarah. In Hebrews 11, 11, the wall of faith. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since he, she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand of the seashore. This is how the author of Hebrews wants us to remember Abraham and Sarah. What doesn't he mention? He doesn't mention anything about her laughing or, or Abraham laughing or, or their complaints. No, for these sins were washed away by the blood of Christ. Fighting through their natural tendency to unbelief, Abraham and Sarah trusted in the Lord. Notice there is nothing in this text, and you'll see in the text to come and the weeks to come, there's nothing in the rest of Genesis that says that Sarah regained a strong faith until Isaac comes. And yet God still acknowledges even her weak faith. It's a radical grace that prevails over doubts, but there's even more. 
he does something radical in the sense, not just his grace, but radical power. We see radical power. As Tim talked about last week, God hadn't just changed Abraham's name. He changed Sarah's name, too, to indicate that his promise also dealt with her. Yes, Abraham would father a nation, but not through the offspring of one of his servant girls. It would be through his legitimate wife, Sarah, despite her advanced age and barren womb. To be barren at all is a painful experience. Childbearing is a wonderful gift that many get to enjoy, and it can be really painful to not be able to. And I hope this doesn't minimize that pain, but to be barren in the ancient Near East was possibly even more painful than it is today, for it was deeply shameful. So much of a woman's identity was tied up in child rearing. That hasn't changed much, but it was definitely very prominent in that day. It literally validated their, ex their existence to bear children. So the promise of a child that once brought Sarah much anticipation is now a promise that seems to mock her very existence. It's what she's been looking forward to for her, her whole life, and all that's happening now in this promise is that it's accentuating one of her most painful realities. Look at verse 12. What does she say? I am worn out, and my Lord is old. Shall I have pleasure? These are some very revealing words about where Sarah's heart is in this moment. I am worn out, she says. What is she saying there? She's not talking about being physically tired because she's old. It's not a, a statement about her physical age. It has to do with self-hatred. What Sarah is saying here is, I am useless. I am good for nothing. She feels invisible, forgotten, and she's loathing herself because of it. Another thing she does is ask the question, will I now have this pleasure? And this isn't talking about the pleasure of having a child. This is talking about the pleasure of the process of having a child. She's talking about the marriage bed here. It is quite possible, based on these words and based on uh, the experience of Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 16, that their marriage is not very close anymore and that she's not exactly been feeling the love from Abraham lately. So we see, as one pastor summarizes, everything in Sarah's culture that would make a woman feel like a woman back then, she didn't have. And we experience similar kinds of pain. Our careers aren't panning out the way we thought. Our families or our marriages don't look the way we hoped. Or maybe you don't have the marriage yet that you long for. God hasn't given you a spouse that you long for. For someone whose story intersects with Sarah's on some level, it's tempting in that place to numb your heart, isn't it? To not hope anymore, to not give your heart to things that will just may let you down. So what does this passage have to say to us in that place? Well, why is God so insistent that Abraham's offspring be born through this barren postmenopausal wife? It's a sign that salvation is by grace alone. Our God is a God who works mostly not with the powerful, but with the weak. As 1 Corinthians 1 states, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
So friends, turn God loose on your weaknesses and watch the fruit come into your life. It's been said, the seasons of our lives that feel most barren to us may, in God's economy, turn out to be the most fruitful seasons of our lives. So what is, how does God meet us in our doubts? He does something relational. He does something radical. And finally, we see he does something tangible. We see this more as this particular story gets to its fullest expression in Genesis 21, which you'll study more later. But let me just read a few verses from Genesis 21 at the beginning of Genesis 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. In verse 2, Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. And jumping to verse 6, and Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Her laughter of doubt turns into a laughter of faith. But the cynic in me says, Of course her laughter turned into laughter of faith and joy. She got what she wanted, didn't she? Of course she can laugh the laugh of joy and faith. It's just a question of timing. Her circumstances were changed. That doesn't always happen to us in our lives. Our circumstances don't always change. But for her, Isaac is born. The laughter of joy gets the last laugh over her laughter of cynicism. But we need to ask, and here's, a, here's the point I want to make, was everything happily ever after for Sarah here? Think about it. She is 90 at that point, with a newborn child. 90-year-old needing to nurse this child. A 90-year-old needing to chase him around as he begins to walk. There, there are still difficulties ahead for her. And Hebrews 11, verse 13, gives some perspective to this moment in Sarah's life. Hebrews 11:13 says, These all died in faith, and it's referring mostly to Abraham and Sarah. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. This shows us that it was not all happily ever after for Sarah. She was still living by faith when she died, not receiving all the things promised, instead still longing for something more, still longing for the fuller expression of the promise she had received from God, longing for a better country. Sarah is promised that her descendants would outnumber the sand on the seashore, yet she was handed one grain of sand. And this 90-year-old woman is given charge to raise this boy. The only thing that changes here in Genesis 21 is the disposition behind the laughter. The first was a laugh of cynicism, the second a laugh of wonder. Why? Because she knows in her heart of hearts that the birth of Isaac means that the bigger promise that she's always banked on is in fact true. The birth of Isaac, this is what I want you to see, is a sign for her. It's something tangible that God is telling her that God is going to come through. 
and carry out the rest of the promise. And Sarah's task now is to take her 90-year-old heart and relocate it into the hope of the future, as Hebrews 11 says that she does. Hebrews 11 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So how can we today in our own lives be sure that this all ends in happy ever after for us as well? as we continue to experience the brokenness in this world, as we continue to be able to say that all things are not made new yet. We see it in our own families. We see it in our society. We see it around the world. How can we be sure that the promise that God will make all things new is in fact true? Because God has done something tangible. He has already given us an Isaac, a better Isaac, our tangible foretaste of God's promise to heal the whole world. As Romans 8 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, something tangible, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Jesus is to us the tangible sign that God will fulfill his promises. And the Holy Spirit also is the foretaste that he then gives us after Jesus ascends to heaven. The Spirit comes down and is called the first fruits of the new kingdom. Jesus came into the world through another impossible birth. His mom wasn't 90, but she was probably around 13, and she was a virgin. She had no husband at the time. It was just as miraculous, if not more, than Sarah's birth. And he, Mary's son, is now the king of the world who has saved God's people from their sins and is reconciling all things to himself. And so we see now that these three visitors from heaven in Genesis 18 had not come to earth just to have a picnic under a tree. No, the stakes were way higher. They had come on a very important mission, a battle, if you will, to ensure that this son would come. And to him, we know as the story continues, twin boys would come. And from one of those twin boys, 12 sons. And from those 12 sons, a nation of Israel. And from that nation, many kings. And from that nation, eventually, the king of the entire world and the savior of the world. And it all started from the womb of a 90-year-old barren woman. How like our God. Though we... And many others may often laugh the laugh of doubts. We follow a God who will always have the last laugh. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this rich encounter we have had in, in Genesis 18 of doubts of one of your saints. Lord, we thank you that the Bible is ruthlessly honest. We thank you so much for how realistic the Bible is to our own experience.